Hello and welcome to the Learn Chinese Insights podcast, brought to you by ChineseLearnOnline.com, your progressive online Mandarin course. In each episode, I interview someone who has learned Chinese as a second language, just to find out how they learned it and what they're doing with it these days. Um, in this episode, I'm happy to have Scott Fall. Uh, Scott, before we begin, can you give us a short introduction in Chinese, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Um, 我幸福, 名字叫Scott,我是来自于美国的西部 也学两年在大学的。那目前我住在台湾,在台北,也是在泰师大念博士班,在泰师大翻译研究所。All right, good. So you said uh, you're from Los Angeles? Uh, nearby. Okay. Yes. Sure. So you came to Taiwan with the purpose of learning Chinese? Um, that's correct, when I first came. Mm-hmm. All right, so back then, what made you decide to learn Chinese and go to Taiwan? Uh, let's see. Um, really, as a... Let's see. Uh, my major at university was history. Um, I focused on Chinese history, took some courses in Chinese art, art history as well. Um, and the university, or the college I attended, it was a liberal arts school called um, Occidental. Uh, they offered Chinese courses, and I took two years. Our instructor at that time, our professor, was from uh, was from Taiwan. So when I when I finished my undergraduate degree, I decided I wanted I wanted to learn more. I wanted more of Chinese. Wanted to see if I could um, successfully speak this language. Uh, and I came to Taiwan to Mandarin Training Center, training center for two years. Um, so at that in that class were most of the other students also kind of Western foreigners. Um, yeah, we were essentially, it was all, it was in, um, yeah, at Occidental College in Los Angeles, and I think, yeah, it was some years ago, quite a few years ago, but I think we were all, most of my classmates were Westerners. All right. So when you came to Taiwan at that time, how would you say your Chinese was at the time? Um, I didn't speak it very much. I had two years. Uh, we started off with, which I think is beneficial, with Bopomofo and then the Opinion. I could read some characters, um, struggle my way through a newspaper. So um, I would say I was, uh, you know, I was far from fluent. But by the end of two years, um, I was speaking, writing, and reading pretty well. Oh, so you learned Bopomofo in in the states? Yeah, we we first started. Yes, in in the as I as I mentioned, my first instructor was from tai, um, Taiwan, and she she started off with with Bopomofo. Although I don't think they do that anymore. Uh, but I think it was very beneficial because it's very helpful in learning the characters. Right. I didn't think anyone learned that outside of Taiwan. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So I guess he's trying to export it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so what was your plan? You you figured you'd come here further your Chinese, and did you know what you wanted to do with that Chinese later on? No, I I had not really any strong idea then. I just set myself up to, after university. I said I'd come here for two years. Um, see if I could master a language, um, and I did some very. I, you know, I, as most people do, I taught English um, 
in Abushiban and um, worked in the trade office of Thailand, which was an interesting, um, which was an interesting part-time job. Oh, how did you end up there? Um, it was where um, I was living in an international dorm at the time and had quite a few friends from Thailand and a friend of a friend, and um, they wanted a part-time native English speaker to handle the business or the business correspondences or oh. business correspondence, et cetera. So All right. I went there and, yeah. So what did you do after these two years? I went back to the U.S. and I went to uh, um, graduate school in business um, in Phoenix, Arizona. Arizona went to Thunderbird or what is it? The, what's it called now? It's part of Arizona, um, Arizona State University, but it's a graduate school of international management. Mm-hmm. And then how did you get from there back to Taiwan? So I, I, then I moved up to Seattle, worked in um, the fisheries business for about eight years. Um, and that um, was was mostly sending, sending um, fish products from Alaska back to Asia, especially, um, especially Japan. Um, and we had, and, and I did some business with Chinese customers. Um, so you got to use some of the Chinese you had learned. Yeah, I did use some of the Chinese when when we were doing uh, negotiation with Chinese customers um, on on selling pollock, which is a white fish, um, a cod, kind of a cod. When we're selling that into um, into China, we're, so we're when all, when you applied for that job, you had put on your resume that you speak Chinese. I had put that there, yes, uh, yeah, definitely on all my resumes. I've, I've I've put that on there, and I think it was beneficial. You know, at that time, when I first started working for the company, um, the main business was um, exporting um, exporting fish from um, salmon, salmon roe, or and from Alaska to Japan, um, and we were just a, a, a kind of shipping broker, a shipping business, so it wasn't processed or anything. Um, but I think it helped that I had the um, Chinese Asian language, and as I as I was there, we developed this trading business with China as well. So, when you go for interviews, do people find that interesting? Um, like yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, they find it that's beneficial. I, I mean, I'm just trying to think. I've because um, it's not I've something that up. many people yeah. have, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a benefit. It's definitely a plus. And and people have you know, it depends on where you're at. But if you know, in the U.S., people have no way of of, of knowing if of it's true or not. knowing how well you speak or right. yeah what you speak so it's, it's certainly um, it's certainly a benefit and particularly with companies that are doing um, that are doing international business sure. especially in Asia but it doesn't matter anywhere really all right so how did you get from there to here well then I had um, a classmate from Thunderbird um, who was um, in the um, in the animal bio- in the animal health business. Um, and there's a company, and he was working with a company um, on the East Coast, and they were looking for a um, what is it, a representative or a, um, an area manager for Asia. Um, and the company did poultry vaccines and in, in, in the in, um, poultry va- vaccines and biologics. Um, I went and interviewed there, and it was def- that was definitely beneficial to have the Chinese. I was based in Taiwan for three years there, and then I moved to. Um, Beijing for ten years. Oh wow! Okay, but that was a 
you know, it was more business background and language background that got me involved, that got, got me the job in that case. Because it was an area, it was biologics, um, vaccines, um, feed additives, uh, for chicken and swine, which is not, you know, I'm not a back, my background's not biology or veterinary or, or veterinarian sciences. So, so that was. So why were you hired for that based on what skill? Um, actually based on business, having an MBA, but also very much based on speaking Chinese. Because okay. the market was for Chinese, well, for, for North Asia. Mm-hmm. And the key market in North Asia is China. So when you were in the States, in the back of your mind, you, were you looking for opportunities to go back to Asia? Um, yeah, certainly. I, I was living in Seattle for eight years, and uh, this opportunity came along. And um, yeah, absolutely, I took it. I, you know, I thought this is a good chance. I'd like to be back in Asia. I'd like to really um, use my Chinese. Mm-hmm. So when you were in, in Beijing, how did life there compare with life in Taiwan? Um, so I was in Beijing from 2002 to 2012. So there, there was, you know, a huge amount of changes that were going on, and there's a lot of infrastructure development as they were getting ready for the 2008 Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was there for one week of that, and went to one event in the Olympics. Um, Beijing, um, northern Chinese people are a bit more. I wouldn't want to say aggressive, but in the way they talk, they're a bit more um, more confrontational in the way mm-hmm. you talk. I mean, if you have a little traffic bender or something, people get out and you hear a bunch of yelling back and forth. Um, never really violent, but you know, there's 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 that there's maybe a bit more more in your face. More in your face, yeah, that's a good way to put it. As compared in in Taiwan, people are generally you know much more more laid back. Laid back, yeah, laid back, polite, respectful in that, in that sense. Um, the obvious um, environmental issues is my first years there, um, you know, you could noticeably see the um, the air quality mm-hmm. um, or in the sm- and the um, smog and uh, air pollution. I was there, I think, in, I think there was that big sandstorm in 2000, 2002, 2003, um, where all the sand blew in from Mongolia and it turned the sky red. It was, you know, it was pretty pretty phenomenal and you know thin layer of sand came through even even shut windows came through and covered covered the floors but that was more of a natural you know that was more of a natural um, a natural disaster type mm-hmm. thing um, but uh, oh, and as the you went up to the Olympics the air quality definitely did get better because they they turned they they um, the government has the ability to tell businesses to shut down in a 150 kilometer Area around the city, and all these um, smog-producing industries um, were shut down in preparation for the Olympics. Um, and then even car the, license plates and things like that, right? Right, but then shortly thereafter, the number of cars coming onto the freeways two, three thousand a day coming onto the roads in Beijing, it's just become an overwhelming problem in the air quality. When I've traveled back, I haven't been back for two years, but I was traveling for about a year from Taipei to Beijing, and every time. You descend into this yellow, hmm. this yellow cloud. Um, so when, on, on Beijing, on that side, um, so air quality. I mean, that's always thing. Taipei went through that as well, but it's um, you know I, I live out in Sansha, and you know I, I enjoy the, the clean air. Um, but that's, I mean, it's important for health, but it's a, it's not you know the most important reason for for living in an area. Uh, infrastructure in Beijing, getting ready for the Olympics, they put in just. Um, 
you know, miles or kilometers of um, subway tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, in projects, big infrastructure projects like that in in China, they almost happen overnight. They just throw a whole bunch of bodies at it and the engineer and they, and they put in the high speed rail. Um, it, it almost went up, almost went up overnight. It was, you know, there's a huge difference between 2002 to 2012, 2012 when I left. Um, so you think it's a lot more livable place now? Um, it's hard to say. I haven't been back there. I mean, I was I was ready to leave after ten years. Um, but it, you know, I would say if you like for infrastructure, mm. um, it's a very you know connected by subways, very livable, um, uh, very livable place in that regard. I mean, beautiful glass skyscrapers and, and everything. And there are some of the hutongs are still are still there that you can um, that you can visit. But I think on on the way on just lifestyle. The way people interact uh, and everything, I'm much happier being in in Taipei. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I had, I've had good friends. I had good Chinese friends in Beijing. Still do. Um, good place out there. Um, you know, um, what do you say? Good lifetime friends. Mm-hmm. But it's it's just a different uh, mentality and different environment in that in that way. Um, and Taipei is on. The way people interact, the way government interacts, the way people interact with government, the way people interact with themselves, the way business interact, um, is I think st- still several years ahead of of Beijing in that in that kind of development. Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. And what about uh, getting back to the Chinese? So obviously Beijing and Taipei that would be kind of the extremes as far as like dialects and things go. Was that ever a problem? Yeah, it would kind of be. I, I mean, I never the um, the real Beijing. Um, Beijing Hua, mm-hmm. or, um, that I never really picked that up. You know, I don't never really tried to make that accent. Mm-hmm. Um, but under, understanding it, people and stuff, no problem. You can cab cab drivers, and you know, most of the cab drivers in Beijing were local, uh, would be local hires, Beijingers. Um, so you know, no, as long as they didn't talk too much, there there can be like there, there's a lot of slang or, or something like um, and idiomatic expressions. Mm-hmm. That are used in in Beijing and um, the north, that can be different, difficult to pick up. And if they if there's really, um, really a strong accent where they really roll their tongue and make that R sound, that could be difficult to listen to. <laughs> but in the mo- but in the in the most part, it it's not that difficult. It, and if you're outside of Beijing, if you're in the northeast, um, that's really much closer to that. That's really much closer to standard. Mandarin dialect, mm-hmm. um, and it's very you know Liaoning or Hunan. I think Hunan is is also where um, maybe what you would say is the standard Chinese dialect or standard Chinese accent. So that's not not too much different. They're, they're not too much different than Taiwan. I mean, it's easy, it's clear, and easy to understand. I, I thought when I it's interesting when I was in Beijing, people would often um, say it's when I spoke Chinese. Oh, it's Say it sounds like somebody from the from the from the south. If I was on the phone, you know, I take it as a compliment. They would they would you know question. They would ask you know it sounds like you're coming from the south rather than it sounds like you're a foreigner speaking. So, <laughs> um, but definitely, um, and over you know maybe because I probably because I first started learning Chinese from uh, in Taiwan and from a Taiwan um, instructor. Sure, I've always found that accent more pleasant and more mm-hmm. easy to listen to. Now, initially, when you learned Chinese, was it uh, traditional or simplified? Traditional. Well, even in LA, they were teaching traditional. 
Um, well, yeah, this was yes at at that time. Yes, it, well, our instructor also came from Taiwan, and the the university or the college just started the Chinese program. So okay, so if it was done today, it would probably be simplified. I think simplified, and they wouldn't teach uh, Bopo Mofo. They probably right, just right, right. Ah, teach, okay. Yeah, probably would be. But I'm I'm happy, very happy that I learned the traditional first. And actually, I prefer I'm um, I prefer reading um, traditional characters to the simplified characters. Hmm. So, uh, looking back in your journey, as far as uh, how you, let's say let's start with how you learned Chinese. Is there anything differently you would have done, or something you wish you had done earlier, or anything like that? Um. Yeah, I probably. Well, I probably would have done. An academic route many years earlier. I'm um, after being about 15, 20, 15 years in business, doing a business route, doing an MBA. Now I'm um, back at university doing a PhD at Taishita. Yeah, let's talk about that. What prompted you to do that? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, um, uh, let's see. I'll, I'll, I'll get there. I'll start replying to your last question. And get, and get, oh, okay. Get Sorry. Go that, ahead. Yeah. So yeah, you were. I was. Would you do anything different? Um, so just in a in a much more broad brush kind of um, stroke, I would I would I would have gone an academic route rather than mm-hmm. doing a business route. I mean, I enjoyed business. I had great experience um, running all over China and seeing a lot of um, Asia and China um, in a business background and using Chinese in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's when doing business, you find you it's a much more narrow focus. Okay, I had conversation abilities um, um, improved or Developed conversational abilities, developed a certain um, terminology in the field of business I was doing. Um, but for fifty, you know, for that fifteen years, I think I would have been so much better to have been really, del- really um, delving into Chinese and reading a lot more, reading just a lot more newspapers, reading a lot more books, novels, histories, um, just in in Chinese itself. Um, so now to get what what prompted me to um, Get into the PhD program uh, uh, was well. On the business side, my last contract. When my last contract came up, uh, we didn't renew the contract. I had moved from Beijing back to Taiwan. Um, business was um, not going the way we were expecting. Um, so on both sides, um, it was for myself. It was time to leave, and for the company, it was time to uh, move in other directions. Um, and I had been wanting to do more with Chinese for a long time, particularly to translation. Um, so, in, when I left in 2012, um, I reached out to several agencies and I started to pick up fr- um, freelance translation jobs, just anything um, that was available. So contracts. Um, so this is Chinese to English. Chinese, um, Chinese to English, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't do English to Chinese. I, I, you know, and the main thing is I, I, I don't write very well at all in Chinese. Um, so there's, there's a noticeable difference. I feel very comfortable in my writing in English, and I can do something. Um, you know, worth somebody's effort to read if I write in English. If I write in Chinese, it's kind of a mess. Um, but that said, I, yeah, I really usually like, translators will translate into their native language, right? Ab- you know, absolutely, it makes sense. I mean, because if if you're, it's your, your writing ability is also very important in in, in the language you're translating into. Okay. Um, but that said, you know, I I also want want to improve my. Chinese writing ability, so that's something I, I want to, you know, I'm working on as well. Although not as, um, not as diligently as I should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting back on track, in 2012, um, I left the business um, world, the business world, and um, 
decided in, in, with it with the with the intention that I want to change my career path and do something that I've been wanting to do for years. And so I started doing freelance translations and I applied to the um, program at um, Shida University, um, uh, Giti, which is a Fani Yenjo school. Um, I applied initially into the master's program as I, I didn't have I don't have a background in translation studies. Um, and, and I wanted to see if, first of all, if I could was still had the drive to do to do an academic program like this, to do graduate school. And I found out uh, I've been in that program for two years. And just this year, I transferred into uh, the Ph.D. program. Um, and in Taiwan, they have a a system in graduate school where where you can make a direct transfer from a master's program into a PhD program, and they allow from each institute. Well, they, I don't know how many they allow from each institute, but from Kitty, they allow one master's student a year, a year to transfer into the PhD program, which in Chinese is called Jingdu. Um, and I don't think we have a similar thing in the U.S. Um, you know, if you you do the master's, you have to get your master's. You don't have necessarily have to write a thesis paper for all master's programs in the U.S., um, but I think you have to complete the program before you can go to the Ph.D. program. Um, so this was a good opportunity. I, I, um, well, for, so for two years, I did the master's program. I found I do have an affinity for this. Um, I um, enjoy the studying, very interested in the theory of translation studies. I applied to do, move into the Ph.D. program, and they accepted me into the Ph.D. program, and so I'll start that up in um, start that up in September, and my objectives for for doing the program are, you know, what, what will I do after the after our PhD program? Um, and I'm giving myself I'd like to finish it in three years because I think I can. I've got a dissertation topic, and if all goes well, I think it's doable. It's possible, but it's it's um, talking to other students is quite difficult to 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 finish in three years. But I'd like to do that. So from three years from now. Um, I think in Taiwan, I have a very good opportunity or very good career path to work in a university, to be a prof- you know, to have a professorship in a university in Taiwan. Mm. The the issue on that side, because there's a need for um, uh, people with, or, or there's a there's a need for people with skills like myself. So being one is I'm a native speaker of English. There's a lot of programs where we can use that translation studies. Um, so uh, and uh, you know, in translation English to Chinese. I teach in that, and also business background, so uh, PhD. So mm. Taiwan, the universities are all cutting back on money. So if they can hire one person with many different hats, they can do their different um, programs. I, you know, I think there's an opportunity there. And if you get a, so, if I get the PhD, um, I think I'll have you know a pretty good chance to do a career path. That the, the drawback to that is the salary for professors in Taiwan is is very low. Uh, but on the other, on the other hand, there's opportunity to to do freelance other freelance projects, freelance translation. Um, Etc. So, are there any other foreigners in this program? Um, yeah, absolutely. There's another in the master's program. I was there. There's another American from Seattle. Um, there's there's some um, overseas Chinese, which so they were from Hong Kong and Macau. Mm. I, I, you know, I guess there's about ten percent are international students. Mm, interesting. I think, yeah, I think they get about twenty five students, and there's about two or three that are. International and happened to be in the last couple of years. There's been a lot of English-speaking American students. All right. Um, getting back to uh, since you've had experience uh, working in, in business in the states as well as in in Asia, uh, what are some of the differences you've noticed in uh, 
in doing business in, let's say, in China or Taiwan versus in America, like how you interact with clients and such? Oh, it's a good question. Not, not, uh, just, not obviously, there might be many things. So just yeah, I'll try to deal in broad, you know, in broad brushstrokes. It's, sure. it's not, it's, there's, there's not, not, so, not too easy of a question to answer. But um, let's see. I think on one part in Chinese doing the business or being um, doing business is is more of an all encompassing. I mean, it kind of takes up your whole life. The social interaction. Is very important as much as as much as uh, you know the eight to or the eight to five office hours and things and so in management. But I think you know, if you're in U.S. management, you have to socialize with um, customers and such. But there's more of a on the U.S. side, there's more of a line between you know my work and my family or my um, social life. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Chinese, that line is completely blurred, so it, it can be. You may you may sit in office and think it's not much product productivity going on here. You know, it, it, you know it it varies. I mean, some is very uh, frenetic, and you can say there's a lot of productive work, or maybe it doesn't seem like there's much being done between the hours of eight and five. But from five to you know midnight, you know, there's you know socializing and business deals and, and, and negotiations being done. Uh, you know, in that aspect. So I mean, I think that, you know that tends to also happen um, in. Um, in Western culture as well, but it's just more pronounced and more mm-hmm. pronounced in um, in China in Asian, okay. Asian culture. Entertainment is a bit different. So um, in the U.S., it's sports events and uh, maybe a nice dinner and such. And in China, it's a very nice dinner, dinner, um, and then you know out you know taking customers out drinking and, and whatever else. You know? <laughs> uh-huh. All right, interesting. And also, how about um, one thing that I've noticed with with Western clients in actual negotiations, they tend to be more direct, mm. whereas in with uh, Asian clients or Chinese clients, they tend to beat around the bush. Um, like they yeah. won't tell you what they're really thinking. Do you get that? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to cut through that. You have to build the relationship. There'll be a lot. They'll they'll tell you what they think, what they think you want to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, and know a lot of a lot of it's becoming very popular to get MBAs, um, and there's a lot of MBA programs throughout China. So a lot of the terminology will be there, but maybe the full understanding will be less so than how a Westerner might might understand it. So you'll hear bandy. I mean, it was very popular here. Win win. We're out doing negotiation. So you always hear this all the time. On the Chinese side, and I used to—I mean, it's not quite fair, but I used to joke that win-win was, I win my share and I win your share. So <laughs> there's a mm-hmm. little disconnect between what the um, um, what what the principal was trying to state. So um, yeah, I think you're generally correct. It can be more rigid, and there can be more um, hierarchical structure. And sitting in the meetings can tend to have—you won't have any—you know—there'll be a certain person that will speak out. In, yeah. in in general, do they if they're if you're negotiating with someone, do they treat you differently than they would if they were dealing with a, a fellow Chinese person? Like have yeah, have you noticed surprise when you walk into a meeting and they're like, Oh, how's he here? as opposed to like a local Chinese person? Um I think they'll be more they'll, they'll want to be more they'll, they'll be more polite. There might yeah, sometimes there'll be some there there'll be some surprise there. And then if you can speak um Chinese as well, um that's even yeah, you know, they're more of these, right? But it, a lot of times it can break the ice. 
what is it? Yeah, well, yeah, I can break the ice and make the relationship. Um, yeah, something to more, talk more about quickly, more smoother. Yeah, something to talk about. Yeah, see, I was, oh, I was going to say, I was just getting back to your question. Last question It's probably an old, um, an old maxim or something. I heard this long time ago, and probably you've heard it as well. Um, but I always thought it kind of summed up that for in China, um, signing a contract is just a break in negotiations. <laughs> So you're never really you're never really done. So you might you might get to the end. And on the Western side, you get to the end. You sign the contract. You think you're done, um, and it's really kind of it's it's not quite understood in the same way on the Chinese culture. Hmm. All right, interesting. Sounds like you could write a whole book about this. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for sharing your time with us. And uh, yeah, I'll ha- be happy to share any feedback people have about this episode. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah, I appreciate your calling up and giving me the opportunity to, to talk there. Okay, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Adam. <laughs>